I am Mary Warneman. I'm the William D. Hacker Head of Reader Services here, and uh, I'm pleased that you're here this evening. The lecture is sponsored by the Pierman Endowment, dedicated to Barbara Pierce Pierman, a proprietor of the Boston Athenaeum, who was born in Boston in 1891. She um, was the granddaughter of the founder of S.S. Pierce and daughter of the then president. She uh, grew up on Beacon Street and when she married in the late 30s moved to Lewisburg Square where she remained until her death in 1971. She um, was devoted to her community, her friends, her family, and she introduced her grandchildren to the Athenaeum at a, a very young age. And in fact, I hear that she has grandchildren and even a great-granddaughter here this evening. Uh, the Barbara Pierce Pierman Fund was established to recognize her life achievements. Uh, the Athenaeum revels in welcoming, uh, as a speaker, one of our own, and Anthony Mitchell Samarco is a proprietor. Since 1997, he is taught at the Urban College of Boston. He's well-known, award-winning historian who has published over 60 books on the history and development of Boston. And he speaks on that topic, as he will this evening. He's been here before, so please join me in welcoming him again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here this evening and to basically introduce you to a man by the name of S.S. Pierce. S.S. Pierce is someone who probably every one of us knows. He was born in Dorchester in 1807 and would die in Boston in 1880. But during Boston's Victorian period, he introduced our citizens and our ancestors to gourmet foods, not only canned pineapple before it was actually known in Hawaii, but he would also do things such as rattlesnake meat, something we don't think of our ancestors actually enjoying. But during that period of time, S.S. Pierce himself was someone who was revolutionary. In a lot of ways, his business, which was founded on the premise of the customer's always right, was someone in many ways who would actually emblazon every package that left his store with, of course, the trademark, a rampant lion actually on a shield. And the surprising thing is, this is something that was so well known in Boston in the Victorian period that even Oliver Wendell Holmes is quoted as saying, I was brought up on S.S. Purse groceries. He remarked a century ago when a rival merchant sought the patronage of the aristocrat's favorite breakfast table. And I don't dare change. A bulkwood of proper Bostonian life for more than its 136 years the whole cuisine grocery chain has long filled the Epicurean niche in the United States gastronomy. And with its own coat of arms adorning a distinctive red label on canned goods and the largest line, some 5,000 items of privately packed fancy goods in the world, S.S. Purse was to become a tradition, a Boston tradition. But in a lot of ways, when we begin to realize Boston in the 19th century was changing tremendously, Seen here, Charles Bullfinch was not just a gentleman's architect and who would transform the town of Boston into the city of Boston, but it was something in a lot of ways that he also began to build. In some ways, Boston, and seen here in an 1801 painting that's in the collection of the Massachusetts Historical Society, we began to realize that Boston, with a population of fewer than 30,000 people, was a place that was fairly contained. It hadn't changed since Boston was settled by the Europeans in 1630, 
But by the period of the 1830s, Boston was embracing new ideas. People in many ways were looking at Boston as a place, not just as a city since 1822, but now as a place that would have distinctive areas, such as the West End. This is the earliest known photograph that I can find of S.S. Pierce's store in 1831. It's on the upper right-hand side at the corner of Court and Tremont Streets. And at that point, Samuel Stillman Pierce and Eldad Thayer Worcester would actually open this store, and it would basically be a general store. And for that period of 10 years, they were in partnership, actually providing everything from staple goods to the beginning of fancy items. The surprising thing was that in that instance, the two of them would actually go to the docks here in Boston to actually begin to look in some ways of how they could actually embellish their store. The store was located in Boston's West End. And in this etching of 1822, we're looking down uh, Cambridge Street. On the right-hand side would be Boston City Hall Plaza with the Bayard Tuckerman House in the distance. And you began to see that this was a neighborhood that they were catering to. It was on the foothills of Beacon Hill, but the West End was a very profitable as well as lucrative trade. And in that instance, you began to realize that his building, which predated the Revolutionary War, would have been built in 1765. And it was here where the tax collector lived in Boston. S.S. Person Company, as it would became known after 1836, was something that would provide all sorts of staple goods. And seen here with the premise that it would always remain on a corner, it was something that many Bostonians became acquainted with, and they also would patronize. But by the period of the 1830s, we realized, too, that these two partners, Samuel Pierce and, of course, Eldad Thayer, Worcester, would actually in some ways begin to offer Bostonians things that were unusual. It was said in 1831, Pierce and his partners started out by wholesaling provisions to the ships that were crowded in Boston's harbor. But soon enough, Pierce and, of course, Worcester were bothering with ship captains, often exchanging for provisions for the delicacies that they would bring to Boston from faraway ports. Pierce said, I may not make money, but I shall make a reputation. And these two men were in partnership for just 10 years. In 1836, Samuel Pierce married a woman named Ellen Maria Teresa Wallace of Jamaica Plain. At that point, the name changed. Though he was born a Pierce, she decided to pronounce the name Purse. And as a result, throughout the 19th century and even to the 21st century, many of the families that descend from this man actually still pronounce the name Purse. And it was a Boston affectation in the old English pronunciation. So though he was born a Pierce, he died a purse. <laughs> in this instance, the whole area of Boston was embracing not only the company, but also the aspect of the fancy goods that they provided. Looking down Tremont Street on the far left-hand side is a corner of S.S. Purse and Company. But further down, we begin to see not only the Boston Theater and, of course, the King's Chapel burial ground and King's Chapel itself, but we began to realize that Tremont Street in this period of the 19th century was one of the major thoroughfares of the city. It was also adjacent to the newly laid out Pemberton Square. Echoing Lewisburg Square, which still survives, Pemberton Square was laid out between 1833 and 1834, 
just up the hill from purses. And there, many China trade families, such as the Cushings, Perkinses, and Forbeses, would actually have in-town houses. This was the family that purse would actually cater to. In a lot of ways, it wasn't just residential, but we also began to realize that places such as Gleason's Pictorial Drawing Room Companion was published at Gleason's Hall in the 1830s to the 1860s, and of course, it would be replaced by the Massachusetts Horticultural Society in 1865. So this was a rarefied neighborhood. It wasn't just a place that one could actually get staple goods and then later fancy goods, but it was also indicative of how Boston was changing after it became a city in 1822. During this period of time, we began to realize Boston's population was increasing, not just by matriculation, but by immigration. In the period of the 1840s alone, we were seeing at least 1,000 people on a weekly basis. It would be magnified by thousands on a monthly basis in the 1850s and 60s. So much so that by the time of the revolution, we saw a population that had been less than 15,000. By the time of the Civil War, it was close to 165,000, of which fully one half was either of a foreign birth or the parents were a foreign birth. And in that instance, the whole concept was he did well. After 1841, Worcester would actually remove to Quincy where he would open Worcester's grocery store. It survived in Quincy until the 1880s. But S.S. Purse himself would actually have a company that was actually under his sole control. He had originally lived on Province House Court, but after his marriage in 1836, he lived on Green Street in the West End. But by the period of the 1850s, the family had purchased a house in Boston's South End, number seven, Union Park. It was a wonderful row house that was developed in the 1850s by creating what would be a middle to upper middle class neighborhood. And in this instance, the South End was envisioned as the place that was not only man-made land, but in some ways a place that was a resort for the expanding population. But he also kept a summer house in Dorchester only about a quarter of a mile from where he was born. His house still stands. It's on Adams Street in Cedar Grove in Dorchester. But his summer house seen here was on Gallivan Boulevard, if one can imagine summering on Gallivan Boulevard in Dorchester. The house itself was built in 1840 and was expanded because the Purses actually had seven children. This house would survive until 1920 when it was sold by Henrietta Purse, the daughter of the family, and it would become the site of St. Brendan's Roman Catholic Church. Purse had done well. His company was actually quite profitable, and he was also a shareholder here at the Athenaeum with share number 680. But in a lot of ways, the company would come full force after his death in 1880. His son, Wallace Lincoln Purse, a man who was actually to become the president between 1880 and his death in 1920, would parlay the company his father had founded into one of the wow. most renowned stores in Boston. This wonderful photograph shows this man a determination that was incredible. And though he was born and raised in the West End, he later lived in the South End, he would live on Beacon Street in the Back Bay. During the period of the 1880s, it was he who would begin to see the expansion of the chain of stores. S.S. Person Company had originally been, as I said, at the corner of Court and Tremont Streets. 
But in 1884, the Hemingway estate that owned the building would actually replace it with this structure, which still stands. It was designed by Winslow and Wetherall, an architectural firm that was the successor to Nathaniel Bradley, one of the foremost 19th century Boston architects. This building itself would have SS Purse on the corner on the first floor, the ground floor. And there they would remain until the 1890s when they would move directly across the street to the Tremont Building, also designed by Winslow and Wetherall on the site of the old Hotel Tremont, Boston's first luxury hotel. This building was built on the footprint of that original hotel, and but in this instance, it was 11 stories in height. SS Person Company rented the ground floor on the right of the center entrance. And there they began to again offer all of the details that one would want. Staple goods, but also fancy goods. And during this period of the 1880s and 1890s, the company increased in such quantity that would actually look at this as a place that it wasn't just local trade, but it was now trade that was available by telegraph and later telephone. And here, in a close-up from an illustration from the Epicure, which was a publication that allowed you to order your groceries by telephone or telegraph, these men in the foreground are actually taking orders from both Boston housewives as well as people from as far afield as Beverly Farms or in Duxbury. And the whole concept was that it would be delivered to you, which was something that was not only novel, but quite exciting when the horse arrived. You could also do this by United States mail. And it wasn't just the fact that the Epicure, which was published to the tune of over 10,000 catalogs just in the 1890s, would arrive, but it would also arrive with a pre-addressed envelope. No postage necessary. One would simply place his or her order into it and it would be delivered to box 57 in Boston. And your order would then be delivered according to the day of the week. Boston had daily deliveries, but if you were a far afield, it might be a week or two. And we would see in some ways, people would get these wonderful things. But in that instance, Wallace Lincoln Purse also began to realize that the downtown district was something that was quite profitable, but it was also the fact that the new Back Bay was envisioned as a place of not only a planned neighborhood, but also for the upper classes. And seen here from the dome of the Massachusetts State House in 1852, the Back Bay was literally a bay of water. Between what is today Arlington Street and the muddy river in Brookline, this was an area that would be dammed in 1824 with Beacon Street on the right-hand side. By the 1840s, the Back Bay was something that had to be infilled because, of course, it was a breeding ground for mosquitoes. By damming the river, it didn't have a tidal flow. And by the breeding of the mosquitoes, it became a health hazard. So by the time of 1860, the Back Bay was now created in some ways as not just a residential area, but it also had institutions and ecclesiastical places of worship. But one of the major centers was a place called Art Square. Now, Art Square is today called Copley Square. It was renamed in 1883 in honor of John Singleton Copley. But at that point, it was named after the Museum of Fine Arts that was located on the site of what is today the uh, Copley Square Hotel. 
But here, we would see not only places of worship moving to the new back bay, such as Trinity Church, one of the major features, it was actually to see its place of worship destroyed on Summer Street in downtown Boston by the Great Boston Fire of 1872. So by the time they moved to the back bay in the 1870s, they weren't just following their parishioners, but they were now creating an area that became the center of the back bay. Churches, as well as the Museum of Fine Arts, designed by Sturgis and Brigham and built in 1876, showed that Boston's culture had now come to the forefront. When this opened for 25 cents, Bostonians could actually visit and not only see the wonderful works of art, but begin to realize that this was within an area that would also include Boston's first public library, the Boston Public Library that says free to all directly above. Designed by McKim, Mead, and White, this building echoed the wonderful aspects of Trinity Church, the Museum of Fine Arts, and of course, S.S. Purse. <laughs> On the opposite corner of what is today uh, a shopping mall, one sees in this instance that Wallace Lincoln Purse hired an architect by the name of S. Edwin Toby. Toby was a very well-known Boston architect. He specialized primarily in residential architecture. But this was a building that anchored the western flank of Copley Square. In 1887, it was completed. And if you look, it was 11 stories in height. It was actually different than the other buildings, some of limestone, red brick, or even hammered brownstone. But in this instance, it used both red brick and brownstone to create a Romanesque revival pile. And if you notice, it's also on a corner. On the left-hand side is Dartmouth Street, and on the right-hand side is Huntington Avenue. And there, the company began to offer its choice goods. The photograph is actually from an epicure from the period of 1893. And we see not just candies and fruits and all sorts of different bonbons, but you began to realize that SS Person Company was catering to a discerning public. They'd already been well aware of the store in downtown Boston, but now the Back Bay store became its flagship. It was so successful that Wallace Lincoln Purse would actually expand further. And by 1898, he looked at Brookline. And Brookline's Coolidge Corner was an up and rising neighborhood. This was an area adjacent to, of course, Beacon Street, seen here in the foreground, that would actually change dramatically in the latter part of the 19th and early 20th century with the building of new upscale housing. And of course, well-to-do families, of course, needed choice groceries. And in that instance, SS Purse would actually build this structure at the corner of Beacon and Harvard Street. The building itself was designed by Winslow and Weatherall, and they were actually, again, as I mentioned, the successor firm to Nathaniel Bradley. This building, not only with its wonderful stucco work, but its wattle and daub, was something that was a major feature within the Coolidge Corner area. The building still survives and still has above its entrance the S.S. Purse building. But the whole concept was, by the turn of the 20th century, this place had five different locations. And they were doing to the tune of over $50 million a year in business. It continued to expand, but in many instances, people began to realize with these choice groceries, 
things that included not only cigars and cigarettes, and the cigarettes were either Egyptian or Russian as well as American, the concept was one could get anything he or she desired. And because it was available both in the stores or by delivery from the Epicure magazine, it was something that appealed to everyone. And in that period, in some ways, Wallace Lincoln Purse, seen here in a wonderful bust by Bela Pratt, one of the best-known sculptors in Boston, became not only well-known, but he was a man with discerning tastes. He continued his father's business right through to 1920, and in some ways, the company itself expanded tremendously. But during that period of time, you had to begin to realize the epicure was something that people avidly looked forward to. This cover, which is from 1913, actually shows some of the buildings. When this arrived in the spring, one might actually think of actually providing groceries for your in-town house. There was also an epicure for the summer, for your summer house. And there was also an epicure in the fall for your weekend house. Very convenient. But the whole idea was that everything would then be delivered. One would place an order with those men that we had seen earlier on, and of course, it would arrive. If you were in town, it would arrive with Percheron horses. Now, Wallace Lincoln Purse had a great fanfare, but he also realized that the public's perception of his business was a direct result of its success. And seen here with a flatbed that said SS Purse, emblazoned with a coat of arms, painted in red, you began to realize that these Percherons themselves were an important feature. These would deliver throughout the Boston area, Brookline, and even as far south as Milton. But people would also see delivery wagons that would also include the area of the Boston North Shore. And the mail and telephone order department would allow you to place your order, and at least once a week, the deliveries would be made either to the North Shore or to the South Shore. And in that period, initially, further afield, they were horse-drawn wagons. But the tarp directly above was something that was emblazoned with the crest and SS Person Company. By the period of 1908, though the Percheron horses themselves were used as display, they were retired to Wallace Lincoln Purse's estate in Milton called Fair Oaks. And now, by 1908, there were electrified automobiles. And here the auto car itself would actually go out twice a week to the North Shore and South Shore. Deliveries were incredible. Everything was on time. And in many instances, it was something that people looked forward to. The foods they offered were tremendous. And seen here with tea, we might think that tea was something that was available. But it wasn't just one tea. There was China tea, there was India tea, and there were upwards of over 70 distinct varieties. One of the things about SS Purse was, if you didn't like the blend, they would create one just for you. And in that instance, with over 75 different types of tea, they could make things that were special to you and kept in a file. So when you placed your order, they knew that one pound of tea was your special blend. And in that instance, it went the gamut not only from tea, but also even coffee. And seen here, these coffees might be from India, Arabia. They also had Café de Invalade, which was one of the things that had a low caffeine. Coffee was an important feature, 
and of course it was an expensive commodity. But one thing the company also offered was the Pierce brand. And seen here, SS Pierce's red label was something that was the store brand. And a pound of coffee was usually a little less expensive than that that was imported by the company. Tea, coffee, and of course, what would one enjoy with it but sugar? Well, it wasn't just any sugar. There were upwards of 10 different varieties of sugar cubes that were available. Some were brown, some were white, but each one was distinct and always in a box emblazoned with a crest. And of course, even if one needed cream, it might be on this trade card of SS Purse's evaporated cream. I love the child, it's so appropriate with the Halloween coming up, and her little kitten with a bowl of cream in the foreground. So coffee and tea, as well as sugar and cream, each of these things began in some ways to make people realize what was available. But their food was beyond surpassing. Seen here, cheese was available to the tune of over 40 distinct varieties, both imported and domestic. And during this period of time, you began to say in some ways, how could they do it? Well, one of the things that Pierce did was, and this is a quote from Reader's Digest, the diversity, quality, and rareness of the foods offered by S.S. Purse was unexcelled. And some Bostonians claim that S.S. Purse has introduced more new food products to the American market than any other United States grocer. The first recorded sale of canned corn was made by Samuel Purse in 1848. Purses sold Singapore pineapple before Hawaiian was ever heard of. And sun-ripened canned peaches, brook trout from Iceland, and even rattlesnake meat. And needless to say, Purse maintained a business without rival and was not simply a man-made man, but an astute judge of Bostonians and their desire for gourmet and luxury foods. Well, during this period of time, cheese was quite wonderful, but it was also the fact in some ways that here we had the biscuits that went with it. They weren't just any biscuits, these were Tunbridge Wells. You could get assorted biscuits, wafer biscuits, and of course even soda biscuits. It all depended on one's palate. Everything was available through the Epicure. Cheese was important, but so too wasn't Welsh rarebit. In my family home, Sunday evenings was Welsh rarebit over toast. I always loved it, but the surprising thing was the family always said it was not a great uh, aspect, but in many aspects it was also something that had a small juice glass that could be used afterwards. Yankee frugality. But this was tasty Welsh rarebit, something on a Sunday evening that maybe with tomatoes or bacon making it more hearty, it was really quite delicious. So cheese was a big sale. But it was also the fact during this period of time, bacon and other preserved meats was something that was available either by the side or piece. Here, with the red label, breakfast bacon itself was something that was served in jars. But you would also see this actually with enormous pieces of Smithfield hams, cured hams, and of course all sorts of bacons around it. These were things that one could get a pound of or an entire side of bacon. It was incredible with the amount of displays that they actually had. But during that period, it also served ethnic food. Now, macaroni is something that many people have actually enjoyed most of their lives. 
But a century ago, Bostonians were really looking at macaroni as something that was quite novel. Italian-Americans began to come to Boston as early as the 1880s and 90s. Most were northern, Genoa and Venice, but later the southern Italians would look at macaroni as an important feature. Here, macaroni itself, and this was imported from Palermo, Italy, directly by S.S. Peirce, was something that allowed people to have a little bit of a taste of Italy. Well, the story went that when my parents married, my mother was a Boston family and my father was of Italian descent, he said to her, this evening I'd like something special. And my mother, who had never cooked in her life, said, what would you like? And he said, I'd like a bowl of macaroni. So my mother dutifully went to S.S. Purse. And she came home with a can of macaroni, heated it, and served it. He looked at her and he said, what is this? And she said, it's macaroni. And my father, after that, began to realize in some ways that there was a lot to say about something that was known in the family as gravy. Many people call it tomato sauce. But with macaroni, you could actually enjoy something that was actually enjoyed in Italy. By the period of the 1930s, they even served lasagna in the can. And this was something that you simply heated on the stove, and you could actually imagine how delicious it truly was. Prepared foods was something that was novel. Many companies were doing it. But with S.S. Purse, it seemed all right. In this instance, S.S. Purse's red label would have different types of food. But in a lot of ways, ethnic food would also include Chinese. Does anybody remember eating la choy out of a can? I didn't know that Chinese food actually could be prepared until I was a teenager. When I was a child, my mother would say, let's have Chinese this evening. And of course, we got the cans off the shelf. La Troy was something that was actually being produced in California, and it was shipped to SS Purse for distribution throughout New England. And in that instance, it went the gamut of chow mein noodles and sprouts and chop suey and cooked rice. It was something that allowed people to taste macaroni, or in this instance, even Chinese food, something totally different. But if you wanted to eat your way to health, S.S. Purse was also somebody that would offer in their epicure something that included not just graham crackers, but in this instance, a cereal meal that works with nature, not against her. And in that way, yes, you too could eat your way to health and of course look quite good. Purse's was something that was all inclusive, but it was also something that had one of the biggest sales, which was alcohol. You had to realize that in the 19th century, when most Bostonians ascribed to the total abstinence pledge, that close to 45% of S.S. Purse's annual sales was alcohol. And seen here, Deleuze and Fee, which was actually a wonderful bottling company in France, would see these actually imported. But in the 1840s, Samuel Purse would actually begin to offer a specific thing that was called Twice Across Madeira. Twice Across Madeira was not only interesting, but it was a potent drink that many Bostonians in the Victorian period quite enjoyed. In that instance, it was something that was quite unusual. It says that S.S. Purse was the first to sell liquor, while Bostonians ascribed to the total abstinent pledge, in, one, in which one actually pledged not to indulge in evil spirits. S.S. Purse was to include Twice Across Madeira in his shop, with the assurance that it was shipped from Madeira to New York 
transhipped to Buenos Aires and then back to New York, thus having twice crossed the equator. The Madeira was surely of fine quality, but the cachet was to make this particular brand of Madeira one of the best sellers in New England. Madeira was something that was delicious, but with ports and sauternes and, of course, even clarets, S.S. Purse began to offer page after page of vintage wines. And in that instance, you began to realize that one could get a claret or even a sauterne of a specific vintage. They weren't inexpensive, but it was the best available on the market. S.S. Purse would actually see many families laying in champagne for when the young son would hit 21 and of that box of champagne would be broken open when they came of age. It was something that people looked at, not just as something that was available, but something that was special. And in that way, it wasn't just this, but you would also begin to see them offering guaranteed vintages of Medford rum. Now, Daniel Lawrence and Son was one of many rum distillers, and it actually was established in Medford as early as 1831. During the 19th century, the rum was potent. When they said they were serving punch, most times it was actually 98% rum with an orange and a lemon cut into it to just cut the bite. Rum was something that was known to our colonial ancestors, but by the latter part of the 19th century, there was vintage rum. And here, the guaranteed vintages of 1883, 85, 86, and 87 were the best. Rum can be a very potent drink, take it from me. But the idea was you could always cut it with something that was available as as purses, the old Medford good mixers. And this was something with two-thirds of a glass of rum and a third of a mix was something that made it not just palatable, but it was something that was really quite enjoyable. This was all available through the Epicure or if one went into the store. But another thing they provided was not just European imports, but in this instance, California brandy. The surprising thing was it went the gamut from, yes, rare vintages of clarets and sauternes imported from France, but also things that were provided through New York distilleries and California distilleries. But if you actually ascribe to the total abstinence pledge, maybe you would actually enjoy ginger ale. Puroxia, ask her anytime. It was delicious, refreshing, and it was not alcoholic. These advertisements were things that made people realize in some ways that this company was something that provided something to every aspect of American society. Delicious foods, prepared foods, but also things that were really quite unusual. It wasn't just adults. They also provided to children. And Clapp's baby food was something that was not only delicious, but it was served in glass jars, ready to dilute, heat, and serve. Children loved it. But it wasn't just children. Even dogs loved SS Purse. And as it says, old trusty, foods for the dog. Well, this wasn't just old trusty. There was an entire page of dog food that went the gamut of prepared food as well as dry food. So whether one was actually providing food for the table for the adults and the family or children, even the pet was actually remembered. And in that instance, you began to say to yourself that S.S. Purse and the Epicure was something that touched upon American society. 
It was an important feature. By the 20th century, Wallace Lincoln Purse had solidified the base. His father, who had continued it until 1880, and now Wallace Lincoln Purse up until 1920, would later see the company continue for four generations of the Purse family. It would only be when Roger Preston, who had been treasurer of the company, would eventually become president in 1946. But the whole concept was there were generations that had known and patronized S.S. Purse. This is a woman by the name of Francesca Alexander. Her father was Francis Alexander, the great portrait painter, and many of the portraits here in the Athenaeum were done by him in Boston in the 1820s and 1830s. But because he was an arch enemy of Gilbert Stuart, he left Boston, and eventually the family settled in Florence, Italy. Francesca Alexander wrote in 1910 to S.S. Person Company, claiming to be the oldest customer who was still living. And it says to Mr. S.S. Purse, Mrs. Uh, Francis Alexander, now 96 years old, has the pleasure of offering this likeness of herself in memory of the pleasant business relation between his family and herself, beginning in 1834, with the best regards of the oldest customer in 1910. It was something that many people took great pride that they had traded at purses as early as S.S. Purse had begun. And in some ways, it was an important feature. But the company was also well known, not just to provide foods with delivery, but also delivery service. These were photographs of a family that was camping in Lake Memphremagog in Vermont. And seen here, they would actually take their things off the boat, and all of the little wooden baskets actually say, from S.S. Purse and Company. But do you notice the one in the center, Shinnecook Scotch? It's an entire box of scotch. Now that's a picnic. And you began to realize that once it was brought to the camp and one actually started the fire, and you can imagine these people were actually staying in tents. I don't know what they did with their luggage. But the concept was Bass Ale and Shinnecook Scotch made this a fun camping trip. These were important features because you could get almost anything from the company. By the 1920s, it would expand even further. Walworth Pierce would become the president of the company after um, Wallace Lincoln Purse's death in 1920. He too continued to expand the company and he would build what was called Business Central. And Business Central, the building still stands at 133 Brookline Avenue. And here they solidified everything from the packing and shipping of all items, whether it was staple goods or fancy goods, or whether you were sending a box of chocolates to somebody who was actually taking a boat across the Atlantic. In this instance, the building itself was an important feature, and you can actually see on the upper right-hand side all of the motorized vehicles that would deliver throughout the Boston area. In this instance, you began to see the company continue expansion. But by the 1950s, after Roger Preston had been president, the company made one further foray. And in Chestnut Hill would open this very sleek and modern store. And as you can see, Walter Drowned Teague was the architect. He would build this as a place that was not just SS purses, but it was in one of the most affluent towns in the United States. 
Chestnut Hill at Route 9 was something that would eventually, in this instance, have not just the structure, but an interior that was beautifully decorated with not only hostess trays and platters, but things that one could actually get, either delivered to the house, ordered through the Epicure, or simply taken from the shop at that day. By the 1950s and 60s, with four generations of the Peirce family having provided these fancy goods, it was something that many Bostonians looked to. It was a tradition. It had now become full circle. And seen here in its original store at the corner of Tremont and Court Streets, it was a place that Bostonians knew, patronized, and realized quality goods. Expensive, yes, but it was also something that people realized it was a good value for the money. Some of the smaller things that they provided were quite unique. Caviar, something that many Bostonians in the late 19th century began to enjoy. But how do you eat it? In the Epicure, there would actually be things that would show you how to prepare it and serve it to your family and guests. And here, of course, the serving of caviar could be done as a stuffing for celery with lemon juice on toast or caviarettes, in rings of egg whites on buttered brown bread, or even with tiny pickled onions and a low half tomato on toast rounds. Caviar was delicious, but you needed the caviarettes, and they too were available through the Epicure. Everything would go the gamut, so whether it was caviar or salmon or even rattlesnake meat, we began to realize that the peculiar Epicurean delights of our Victorian ancestors was something that brought this company full circle. But you also might do bone chicken, something that had shelf life. That unexpected guest, if it was at lunch, one would make chicken salad. Maybe in the dinner time, it would be chicken a la king. But bone chicken in the red label was something that was all white meat and boneless. You might also have, in this instance, Purser's brand sardines, something on a salad, especially a Caesar salad, that created a delicious idea. But it would also be, in some ways, the SS Purser's prepared foods. In this instance, beef pot roast with vegetables and gravy was something that was a meal in a can. Simply heating it meant, in some ways, it was really quite delicious. These were all prepared at Business Central. So whether it was beef, or it might have even been creamed Finn and Hattie, something that many Bostonians love. It was something in a lot of ways with a shelf life and in a prepared commodity, especially with the red label, that made it not just delicious, but it was something that had shelf life. And in that period, the company's service was something that was said not just to coddle the customer, but to actually make the customer aware of what was available to them. These two slides actually show it from the Reader's Digest in 1957. Purse's private label meant quality goods, and one could get everything under the sun with the red label. But you might actually wish to sit down and actually enjoy a cup of coffee that was brewed for you. You could choose which coffee you liked, or you could even sit at the tea counter and combine it with other different types of teas to make your own special blend. And in that way, it was something that many companies did not offer the quality service that SS Person Company did. In this way, the company became known. 
not just for cigars, such as the Overland or La Fleur de Est. These were imported cigars, many from Cuba, but there were also cigars made here in Boston. They went the gamut again of a half a page of just cigars. What else? Chocolates. And chocolates in this instance, which were exquisite chocolates in miniature, because of course Eugene's petite chocolates was something that you could enjoy after dinner. You have to eat four of them to get the equivalent of one large one. But they were quite delicious. So whether it was cigars or chocolates, it was something that made it quite unusual. But of course, SS Purse was providing quality goods. It was for your table, and you'd always want your table illuminated with candlelight. And here, Waxels, the friendly light, was available through SS Purse. These were dripless candles that made every meal special. Well, seen here, Samuel Stillman Pierce, who became known as the purveyor of fancy items at Purse and Company, was someone in a lot of ways that many Bostonians looked at as a very important man. In the 19th century, he created a business that was so well known that in a lot of ways, people realized he was quite special. One woman wrote about it, and her name was Nancy Hale. Nancy Hale was a well-known writer in the 20th century. She wrote in New England Girlhood. She was the daughter of uh, Philip Leslie Hale, a well-known portrait painter, and the granddaughter of Edward Everett Hale. And she says, on the coldest winter Saturday nights when the snow lay two feet deep all around our house in Dedham, and the snow was still falling, when this local tradesman had completely given up on any attempt at delivery since the day before. Then, perhaps, while we were seated at our table eating baked beans and brown bread at the dining room table, the back door would open and bang, that reassuring crash of the big purse's delivery box with slot handles. Onto the kitchen table would be followed by similar bags and its contents rapidly being taken out and set down. Purses, the man would call, with a certain hearty, unvarying cheerfulness. And we would rise from the table, napkins in hand, and rush out into the kitchen to see him, snow all over his shoulders, face crimson, taking the last things out of the box. A crock of strawberry jam, the wooden tub of butter, and preparing to depart on his long, lonely road. Do let me give you a cup of coffee, my mother would cry. But he always shook his head and laughingly said, if I stopped going, I'd freeze to death. And if I went, I went out again. Then the back door slammed, and the sound of horses snort, and the sound of runners would be heard. For what always happened on those bitter days when the local tradesman failed us was that purses, unable to get its auto trucks through, either hired sleighs from livery stables and got through anyway with the delivery, a standard that, for me, easily rivaled the dashing boasts of the United States mail. It's a nice tribute to a company founded in 1831 by a family for four generations. Surprisingly, the company was sold in 1972 to Seneca. Seneca was a company in New York, and though the company itself began to phase out many of the purse brands, they do still, in some ways, prepare not only SS Purse vodka, but of course, even Manhattan mix. And today, when we look at SS Purse, we realize in some ways, and we look back fondly at a Boston tradition. 
Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it.